Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California. This is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael, and today we welcome back our very good friend, the Reverend Jim McGrath, who is the uh, pastor at Gateway Christian Church, and he's also screenwriter and playwright. And today we're going to be talking about um, religious tolerance versus intolerance, but in particular, we're going to look into the history of the war on Christmas and a few other historical things associated with Christmas. But before we get started on our last show, by the way, for 2020, Michael's a few announcements. Yes, here we are at the end of 2020, our second year and over 100 episodes in. And thank you guys so much for for following us and subscribing and joining in our show. Our chat will be open, so if you have questions for Jim, let us know. Um, As Krista mentioned, we're kind of going into a hiatus for December, so we will take a couple weeks off and regroup. Um, And we have a whole bunch of new guests that we're lining up for the beginning of the year in January and February. So join us and subscribe and uh, if you haven't already. And uh, and we're going to have a lot of fun. It should be a really cool year. Um, Get all the information on our website, SixthSenseSociety.com, S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out. And while you're there, um, you can buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. It helps us to cover some of our production costs, which we very much appreciate. And and if you can't afford it, please stick around and enjoy our show anyway. We love all of you guys. And definitely comment and, you know, interact with us is really great. Um, you can subscribe to our newsletter as well. And we put that out quarterly. We've got some links to some of our favorite episodes and maybe some other cool content that we find online and whatnot. So we'd love to have you guys participate in that also. So without further ado, I'm going to kick it back to Krista and uh, take it away, Krista. Great. Thanks, Michael. Hello, Jim. Hey, how are you doing? We're doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. We're doing good. Settling down for winter, you know, since yes. we in California. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, it has been a little cool here. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about maybe why you decided, uh, you had suggested the the show's um, title and sort of theme, uh, particularly the part about the war on Christmas. And of course, it's associated with religious intolerance. So why did you pick this, this topic? Um, I did because it's just uh, the war on Christmas is a pet peeve of mine. And at uh, in, in a church setting, both at the church where I am now and then previously at Sunset Park where I was pastor, uh, when this subject comes up, I mean, and, and these are church communities that are fairly liberal and not, you know, not, not crazed, but uh, the, they all start complaining about how, you know, everybody's after them to say happy holidays and they absolutely refuse and I had a guy come up to me, he said, happy holidays. And I just said, Merry Christmas, <laughs> you know, and somehow in that we lose something, don't we? I mean, isn't there, isn't there something 
about the true spirit of Christmas that would open us to everyone. I, uh, in the letters of Paul, you have a formation of a Christian theology that is supposed to be open to anyone. Uh, Paul set uh, forth the idea, and it, I think it was new with him, that there was no such thing as a spiritual hierarchy, that God is equally close to all of us, all of us. And, and, it, and, and this is the beginning of religious writings that are not pointed to a particular tribe in which there is going to be us against them, but encompassed all creation. Yeah, that I didn't know that about Paul. That's very interesting. I wouldn't have thought he he would be like that. <laughs> Paul is this real right wing uh, suppressive fanatic. He wasn't. He, I mean, you know, he he had his faults, and he always admitted to that. He was not in the position he was because he was seen as a great saint, rather because he was somebody who started out on the road to Damascus to bring in followers of Christ to be killed. Uh, so he really, you know, he, he made no claim to sainthood and had none, really. Uh, and, and, and the idea that he would be chosen to bring the world Christian theology was a sign that no one is above the pale. And whenever Paul was telling people how to live, he always stressed I'm not perfect, you know. I've, you know, I, I've, I've done some horrible things, and you know, I'm no better than anybody else. Hmm. So, um, I'm just a little curious, as from your point of view, what you would either define tolerance or intolerance um, in religion. What is your definition of it? Because that that is a very uh, big word, big words, and yet they immediately evoke certain feelings and thoughts in most of us. You know, our founding fathers, you know, in, as, as part of the, uh, uh, the philosophes, the French tradition of rational thinking, uh, kind of came up with this idea of religious freedom. Now, religious freedom is not the same thing as religious tolerance, and, but it's, it's the germ of the idea uh, that in, in this nation there would be no state religion, there would be no religious test put to someone who was trying to get citizenship. There was no, no government entity of any kind would be able to tell you what your religion should be. And that was a big break from where they'd come from. And so, you know, that's the beginning of the idea. But religious tolerance in a Christian world, we don't really come into a language for that, in my opinion, until the mid-1960s with the Vatican II hmm. and uh, Pope uh, John XXIII, who developed or commissioned others to develop a language that said, you know, this Jewish guy over here who's worshiping God, that's real, and that can get him into heaven too. You know, the, uh, uh, the idea that we are not the only ones the members of my church who will make it into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there's that. But the other thing is every religious group has some kind of history of being oppressed by somebody who felt differently. And it's buying into that. It's, it's almost like the uh, abused child syndrome. So I, I, I think there's something of that. Uh, 
the 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 fear of religious persecution. But the other thing is, uh, and Michael and I were talking about this before the the actual show started, is that in my view, it's a cover for actual doubt and fear of doubt. In other words, I can't even open the door to the idea that I might be wrong. Uh, that that would be the most fearsome thing in the world. And so that fear gets transferred as fear of people who are different with the idea that because of being different, they are oppressing me. Yeah, that's very true. Another thing that I think um, having to figure out your own beliefs, it takes a lot of wrestling with the mind. And so I remember as a, as a tarot card reader, this young man very early on came to me, we were doing a reading and he basically asked me if I really believed in a God or something like that. And and um, I said, well, it really, I said, it doesn't matter if I do. I said, you're going to have to figure that out. You are going to have to sit down and, and do the work. And, and I've gone through myself various stages of what I metaphysically even believe in. And it's, it's, it's not something you arrive at and, okay, it's done because we're tested. That's the other thing. We're always tested on, will our beliefs hold up under these pressures? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, that's the, uh, that's the thing that I guess people, they're, they're holding on to something that if they let go of just a little bit of it, uh, they would lose it all. Yeah. And, and, you know, that we were talking about also before the show, the idea of, of that being connected to possibly a fear of death or of becoming nothing and, and that sense of wanting some immortality, which interesting enough, it find I find that if you find emotionally a place where you realize you're not the center of the universe and that you're just part of a beautiful universe, it's actually more freeing, ironically. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, it's yeah. a lot less pressure. <laughs> Nothing else. So let's start talking about where this all began, this history on the war on Christmas. Well, the first of all if you think about christmas itself it's a it's a combin it's it's not just one religious system it's a combination of a lot of different things that came before the life of christ uh in in what was known as the pagan world you know the uh the time of greatest darkness the winter solstice is uh, a time when just naturally people would have celebrations and search for spiritual renewal and light lights or bonfires. And the, uh, the, the, the so-called pagan world in, in the Germanic world had uh, the Yule celebration, from which we now get the, the word Yuletide, mm -hmm. uh, which would involve days of partying and lighting lights and all this kind of thing. Uh, and we have no record of the birth of Christ. In other words, the date of the birth of Christ. And so there was never any sense of celebrating that because there was no idea of what it was or when it was. And also the practice of celebrating birthdays in general to the first century Christians was not a thing. Hmm. Your birthday was the day you found Jesus, in other words. And the, uh, the, today, in, in, say, the Jehovah Witness uh, culture and, and others today, there is this 
sense of you don't celebrate birthdays. So celebrating birthdays for some people is seen as a thing that you shouldn't do. Then uh, in the fourth century, when we have the Council of Nicaea and the church as, as it exists in the Roman Catholic Church, at least today, begins. And, and the Bible is put together as a Bible for the first time, and the religion is codified. Uh, in other words, before that, there were a lot of different kinds of Christians who believed a lot of different kinds of things. Now it's codified. It's this. And one of the big questions that they struggled with was whether Christ was fully human or fully spirit and hmm. not flesh at all. And it was the Gnostics and, and others who, who, it was called the Arian controversy. And it's something we don't really struggle with so much today because they really set it up then. Uh, the, the controversy being that Christ was both fully human and fully divine. So as a way of establishing the fully human part of it, the church goes for this idea of a birthday that, you know, that Christ was born. And this is the day that we celebrate Christ's birthday. Now, also in the fourth century, there was a guy named St. Nicholas, uh, a Greek bishop, I think he was. And there's a story around him that he was known for giving gifts to three daughters of a man who had died because they were impoverished and at that time, for in that culture, for a single woman to have no source of you know have no source of income, uh, that's prostitution. It's the only direction you can go. And so that and, and again, when we talk about prostitution, uh, this is a very important fact that it, it people talk of it as if it has something to do with evil. What it has to do with is poverty. And that that and and the lack of power that women have in any given culture. Now, that but that so that gift that he gave these three women, which I guess was money, money to live on or whatever, so they wouldn't have to do that. That's what he was remembered for. And so he, as they came to celebrate his birthday on All Saints Day, or celebrate him. I don't know that they were celebrating his birthday, but they would celebrate him mm -hmm. on All Saints Day, which was then December sixth. The uh, it, it became a thing that went with it that there was gift giving. And then that got moved to December 25th as in, in Rome in the fourth century, there was the first actual Christmas celebration. And it was done on September 25th, which I suppose was that year or at that time, the winter solstice. Hmm. And the the symbolism of it is that Christ is light. So it was the perfect time to start to celebrate the start of him at the time when the light would start getting more and more and more during the day. And all this stuff, you know, the Christmas tree, the, the idea that you're bringing a wreath into the house. The wreath was from an ancient Islamic culture. Wow. Yeah, that, that, and, and, and the idea of it, the circle was the seasons representing returning to God regularly. And, and it kind of means that today. 
in, in the Christian uh, world. Uh, Christianity uses wreaths all the time. This is, this is Muslim stuff, guys. And, and it came into our culture because everybody's okay. You know, we can, we can look at something somebody else does in his culture and say, hey, I want that. You know, I, 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 want, I want to get some of that. I want a crepe Suzette, you know? I want an enchilada. You know, it's the, there's something they're doing that I recognize as good, even though it isn't something from my specific culture. And, and what about the evergreen tree? I understand that, I know Prince Albert made it popular in the 1800s, but the tree itself, wasn't that an old tradition in the Germanic pagan worlds as well? Or It was definitely a part of the Yule celebration. Trees played a big role. Uh, but the idea of the Christmas tree specifically comes from Germany in the 17th century or the 1600s. Uh, and... And that also happens right at the time in Germany of the Protestant Reformation, which is what was happening in G German culture at that time. Hmm. Now, when uh, the Protestants first started out, they had this idea, because of its tie-in with uh, St. Nicholas, that, that Christmas was a Catholic thing. Mm -hmm. And because it had become a big party, and this is associated with Roman orgies and, and, and all of that kind of stuff, uh, the idea that it would be a big party, the early Protestants rejected the idea of celebrating it. Hmm. They later picked it up, but the Puritans, the people who settled this country from Europe and brought their religion over, were against the celebration of Christmas. Uh, as were the, the, uh, the Calvinists, the Dutch Reform, uh, who came over. All of these people were against the whole idea of celebrating Christmas. In England, during the time of Oliver Cromwell, Christmas was made illegal because, again, it was associated with debauchery. Mm. And that lasted for about 30 years. Then in England, if you look at... Uh, this movie came out a few years ago. I don't know if you've seen it. The Man Who Invented Christmas. No, have not. Oh, it's great. You got to see it. But it's the story of Charles Dickens writing The Christmas Carol. Oh. In that movie that in his world, Christmas was kind of an underground celebration. You know, they, it, it had been made legal, but still there was enough left over from the Cromwell days that it was not, you know, people who were of high class uh, tended to say, don't get associated with that. And that was a lot of the resistance against Dickens writing The Christmas Carol. Oh. But when he wrote The Christmas Carol, and it was so popular, it defines certain ways. I don't know if you've ever read The Christmas Carol, but it defines certain ways of celebrating Christmas that we've totally adopted, as, such as the singing of uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Oh, what's the other one? Uh, the, the, there's a, uh, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Why, why, if you think about it, why does God rest ye merry gentlemen just say Christmas to us when we hear we hear a calliope playing and we think, oh, it's Christmas. What, what, uh, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, you know, remember Christ our Savior. It's, it's a, it's a tune that has gotten inextricably woven into Christmas. And then in this country, in the early 19th century, you have Clement Clark Moore, 
writing a piece called, which we now know as The Night Before Christmas. Mm. And that added the description of Santa Claus, which we hold today, it named the reindeer. Uh, and again, the, the idea of Santa and the reindeer comes from the early days of uh, St. Nicholas, who, who rode a mighty steed when he would bring presents to people. And then in, in their mythology, it came to be known as a horse with eight legs. Hmm. And, and now here we have the, the reindeer. Maybe that's a bad and and uh, uh, so that's when that got kind of woven in in this country. And then in the 1930s, there was a Coca-Cola ad in which Santa was painted. And that, was, that, that whole image of Santa that we have today in the red, so just, it's, it's all very specific. You know, the white beard, the, right. the, that came from a Coca-Cola ad. In, 19, in the 1930s. Yeah, I guess before that, Santa had uh, coats that were many colored. It wasn't just a red color. So I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> I guess Coca-Cola ads are very powerful. <laughs> I always want a Coke on Christmas the, uh, the, because of those incredibly beautiful paintings of Santa drinking a Coca-Cola out of this refrigerator with Coca-Cola on the door. Uh, and that's and that's Christmas to me. I don't know. But again, I'm just trying to point out how some of this stuff is kind of superficial to religion. So yeah. so that perhaps is part of the tension of it all is depending on on your view of of Christmas, a person can either just kind of be accepting of all the different things or they can get kind of wrapped up and say, well, no, Christmas is supposed to be this way when what what we see from your explanation of some of the, the history is that it's pretty complicated. It is, and and it has to do with a certain openness to other cultures, you know, an openness to what Christmas might be. Uh, and and here, you know, you have artists like uh, Clement Moore and and uh, Charles Dickens creating something beautiful uh, that people, you know, they read and they say, yeah, I'm going to try that. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try a hot toddy on Christmas. I'll give that a try. I think Dickens, for me, um, we grew up watching the black and white version with Alistair Sims that every year we watched it as a family. And it became, you know, because I wasn't brought up in a religious family, it was, it was our idea of Christmas. And I did read the book, too. And he he captures that that really that spirit that is available for everybody for Christmas and how it can transform even someone that is so difficult that you don't think he can be transformed at the end of his life, you know? And and it's the same thing with Paul. No one is beyond the pale. Yeah. And I think that's why it's lasted and they've made movie after movie of, and and, and the actors all want to be in that, you know, the new version of a Christmas care. Although of course I think the book is the best. Yeah, it's a it's a great role. I mean, it, everything, every every kind of human expression and and memory and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's yeah, Dickens uh, Dickens was major in that regard. Who else was major in that regard? Was uh, L. Frank Baum, who wrote the Wizard of Oz books. Uh, he wrote a story of Santa, uh, in which he kind of furthered the description 
and you get the elves, you get the North Pole, you know, you, you get uh, a, a lot of things from that. I had never even known that until I looked into no. it. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a big part of how we look at Santa. And I think he was the reason why all the various, you know, the Kris Kringle, the St. Nicholas, all this became Santa Claus. Well, it's interesting. There, there's kind of a, a similar thing with Santa and Jesus in that people questioned whether or not they were actually real. I mean, I know it's a different idea, but I was just thinking about the idea that some people don't like to tell their kids that Santa Claus, they immediately say, well, he's not a real being. When there's others, like my parents, they let us go through that imaginative period where we believed in Santa and the tooth fairy. And it, it didn't it didn't hurt my rational mind at all. In fact, I'm I'm a very rational person, and so why why do you think people some people don't think it's good for children to believe in Santa Claus? Well, it's interesting. Mary Baker Eddy, whom we've talked about on this show quite a bit, uh, she was very much against the teaching of the belief in Santa Claus uh, because she felt like it was very important for a child's mind to learn to grasp on the truth. And the game of telling a child a lie was uh, taking the mental process in the wrong direction. The, uh, however, the U.S. Postal Service, which was founded by the great Benjamin Franklin, always encouraged the writing letters that kids do to Santa Claus, because what they do with those letters is they take them to, they read them and they take them to various charity. In other words, if they get a letter, you know, saying, hey, my mom and dad lost their job, our house is on fire, you know, the letter describing somebody in great need, then they would arrange with a charity that there be something oh. given to them. Uh, and they encouraged the writing letters to Santa Claus because it taught children the art of letter writing. It taught them how to, you know, fix an address and how to, you know, put the date and, you know, just the whole form of letter writing, which the post office, of course, would encourage. Do they still do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about that. I don't know what's going on with that. Who knows what the post office is doing now, man? They got I know. They don't know... Uh, they can't get the votes in. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> so, so let's get into that irritating, you know, idea of you can't say, you know, Merry Christmas to people and who believes that and who really started that whole very effective campaign of the war on Christmas. Well, the, I, I think, you know, I think there's a long ago start on it, which is uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Uh, who fought for the legal rights of atheists and, and non-Christians not to have religion forced upon them by the government. And then that led to no school prayer, which many people, evangelicals today, will say this is what's gone wrong with our society, is they took the God out of school. And, of course, you can't take the God out of anything. We all know that. Uh, but that's part of a belief system that is different from mine. Um, but the, so the, that began a, a little bit of a battle uh, between culture and religion. And a test of the freedom of religion 
that is, uh, and the freedom from religion in government, that is what our, our founding fathers set up. It's always been a test of that. And so the, the idea that they, the, the, the Christians having the crucifixion complex, uh, even though they are the, the dominant religion in the world, you look at any list of religions and how many people the Christians are way on top. And in Western culture, they are historically way on top. They are not threatened in any way in their supremacy, ever. And so I, I have to say that a lot of this belief is based on bunk, based on the idea that we, who have been shoving our religion around in everybody's faces for so long, uh, are somehow threatened by having to admit the existence of another religious tradition who might want to be celebrating a holiday, who might be a little different from that. Now, the Jews who have lived throughout much of their history, they have lived in situations where they were not the dominant culture and, and they had to coexist with other cultures. And in, in that way, Hanukkah, which is not a holy day, but a celebration, uh, is elevated. In, by Western Jews having to live in Christian culture, you know, so that they can be doing something that's similar to what the Christians are doing and not be called out as weirdos and oddballs. Uh, even though, you know, they're lighting a menorah, whatever, it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of thing. So I have to say that the modern war on Christmas thing is partly due to an anti-Semitism, which has been, you know, in, in the post-World War II era in our culture, has been tamped down. You, you're not supposed to admit to anti-Semitism or whatever, but in the last few years, as it has all over the world, it has sort of bubbled up and, uh, and, and taken on kind of a mainstream form. Uh, so that's part of this, I think, is stressing to the Jews, keep it in the closet. We're doing, you know, we're in, in the street, we're doing our show. And uh, don't, you know, don't uh, tamper with it. Don't, you know, we, we get to do it anywhere. We get to be in your face with our religion, but you don't get to be in our face with your religion. So the, uh, the, the time when there were a number of corporations that dealt with the public, uh, such as Starbucks, who one year, I think it was about three or four years, you remember this, when they changed their Christmas cup mm -hmm. and the world ended? I mean, it was, it was the worst thing they could do, and they ended up having to apologize for it and go back to doing their regular Christmas kind of cup. This is about a paper cup. You know, but that's how strongly this stuff is felt. And I see that with people in my church. You know, they 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 feel that way. They they feel that being told happy holidays or shopping in a store where they have the sign up that says happy holidays that that's a bad thing. That somebody wishing you happy holidays needs to be burned at the stake. I've seen the opposite, too, though, where people get really bent out of shape because someone innocently says, you know, Merry Christmas. And 
they don't mean anything by it other than happy holidays. It's just maybe what they automatically say and the person's so offended. And and doesn't it have to do with people not taking everything so personally and not assuming things about people because they say a phrase that has a, you know, some oomph in it, you know, because it, it, I, I working in bookstores during Christmas season, things like that as a clerk, you see all kinds of stress, yeah. <laughs> retail stress. That actually happened to me uh, when uh, I was kind of new in town and I was working uh, with an organization that I still work with called Imagination Workshop. And we were uh, leading a group it, at the UCLA uh, Semmel Institute uh, uh, psychiatric outpatient group. And we led a group with the people in that, uh, in that program. And I was working one day with the founder of Imagination Workshop, an actress named Margaret Ladd, and uh, her husband, a playwright named Lyle Kessler, who are Jewish. And I had, it was on me to lead the session and organize what it would be. And because we were close to Christmas, I organized a Christmas thing that we would be doing a Christmassy kind of a theme. And everybody was completely offended by this. And it, all of the, the patients in the group, I suddenly realized I was the only one in the room who was not Jewish. And I had just brought in something that is abhorrent to them and that they, they were offended by. The idea that you would say Merry Christmas to me is completely offensive. I just walked into that blind because, because I come from Dallas where everybody's, hey, Merry Christmas. And you don't think about it. It's the perfect thing to say. Why would this ever be questioned? So, yeah, I've been there. I've been there on that, too. Yeah, and, and I, I, I do think it's important to learn about other cultures and how they celebrate. And uh, But I, I think sometimes people also have to be just a little bit more relaxed and give people time to acclimatize. So if you grew up saying something for 30 or 40 years, it's sort of automatic. And um, and then some of us like me, I, I, don't, I just wasn't brought up religious at all. So, you know, I, I have nothing. I didn't know anything even about the Jewish religion, even though my grandparents were uh, escaped hungry from the Nazis. And is that right? Yeah, I, I am mostly uh, your Jewish European DNA. But um, yeah, my grandfather, he saw it coming. He was a businessman and he left Hungary just in time. We took his family and um, they they were practicing Jews there. And I think my grandfather was Orthodox, but we came to they came to the United States. They they weren't that strict of Jewish people. And I, I think it was because of the war. I, I think that my grandfather lost war, a lot of people. Uh, and it shows you uh, the power of anti-Semitism and, and how ingrained in the European way of thinking it is. Yeah, I remember even living, growing up as a teenager, and I'd be around my grandparents a lot. And uh, they would be talking about uh, with their Jewish friends, how they, they'd be working at IBM and they couldn't let people know they were Jewish even then, and that was like the 80s, and everything like, why not? I mean, I, I didn't understand at all why they were afraid of, of, you know, you had to keep it kind of low down. So now I understand, but I didn't as a teenager. But I, I, you say in the 80s, I'd say we're living that more today than we were then. I mean, it's, it, this is a big thing today. 
Yeah, well, it's it's just never really gone away. It just sort of goes underground a little bit and comes back. We haven't really uh, figured that one out, anti-Semitism. There's a, there's a real popularity. I don't know if you've done a show on conspiracy theories, but uh, that would be a great theme for a show because that's really driving people today. The idea that there are these conspiracies against them uh, that, you know, and, and right now, this year, there's this whole anti-COVID, the, the idea that the, the COVID thing is a hoax or it's something that's being put upon us by the deep state as a way to control us better. And I don't want to take that vaccine because they're going to slip a little chip into it. So the government will be controlling me. The deep state will be controlling me. So a lot of people who are thinking this way. And that, again, gets into the war on Christmas. Because this year, if you watch Fox News or whatever, they're going around talking about how the COVID, the way COVID is affecting people who want to celebrate with their families and get together and have big indoor gatherings and whatnot, uh, that it's all part of the war on Christmas conspiracy. That's unbelievable. You know, the irony of the whole thing is because I'm, I'm in sort of a, a semi-counseling uh, career as a tarot reader, is so many people complain about the holidays, but you know, that they, oh, I have to go to my family and I, this is a lot of stress. And exactly. so the year that they, they, they don't get to go now, all of a sudden, and I know some people don't complain, but a lot do. And, and now it's, it's more like a, a sort of a teenager, like I want to do it because I can't. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's just one year people. <laughs> when you're talking about the high stress nature of this time of year, uh, that it's uh, people, you know, they're, they're, there's all this stuff to do that has to do with wrapping and what am I going to buy this guy and where am I going to get the money and all this kind of stuff uh, that is high stress. But the way we think about things is also affected by how much light we're getting, you know, that, mm. that, that it is a time of high stress because it is a time of most darkness. And that affects us psychologically, I think, on a very deep level. Uh, so it's, it's just naturally a time to want to seek the light. And that all of these different kinds of celebrations, even the pagan ones before Christ lived, uh, have something to do with uh, introspection, spiritual introspection. Michael has a comment, I think. Yeah, something that, that just came to mind as I was listening to Jim just now, and I like to call it the dark side of Christmas, and it's because of the commercialism. You know, we obviously have moved away from just it being a time of, of family gathering and having a meal and so forth, um, and now it's about, you know, buying a new car and you watch all these ads on television and then kids, you know, getting all these presents. And I often think about, you know, the people that are the less fortunate and, and how their kids must feel. If you go to school and you, you have, uh, you know, Santa Claus just hasn't been as generous to you as the, the rich kid next to you. Um, and the psychological damage almost that that could do and to, to a kid's self-esteem. And I think that and I think there is stress, you know, around that, too. But I know that years ago that we decided we were going to get away from the commercialism stuff and we would just have a nice meal and we wouldn't buy gifts for each other. And we often thought that that was the best freaking decision we ever made because, you know, our stress level went down so much in January. We didn't have a, a big credit card balance. 
Um, and it kind of made it just, a, again, a more personal celebration. So I, I think that there's, there's just an impact that commercialism has had on Christmas that I, I think really does have a dark side. Which has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. No, no, nothing, and and yet it's it's a prevalent part of of the whole mythology of Christmas now is the the Santa Claus being overly generous if you've been a good kid, you know, and if you if Santa Claus doesn't show up on your doorstep with a a sleigh full of presents, then clearly you must be a bad kid. Yeah, and and there's a lot of bad kids getting great presents. That's true. <laughs> you see it all the time. Bad kid, give him a Porsche, you know, and. Uh, maybe he won't be so bad, but in 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 all of that, you know, you you really have the the commercial demand. It's it's tied into how the economy is doing now. You know, we have presidents who come out and exalt us. Get out to the mall. Get you know, it's you're you're doing your job for the economy, which is so all important. Uh, if you, you get out and spend money because that's when they make their money and that's when they need to come in with some good profits in order to keep this machine of our culture going. It's your patriotic duty to get out there and spend money and, and let them soak you as a way of proving that you love your family. So true. I never really looked at it quite that way. And I um, when I got into Buddhism... I still kept doing Christmas things because I, I really, I have very fond memories of Christmas in my family, maybe because it was very simple and fun. And I, especially as a little girl, so I, I stopped doing it just for the reasons that Michael said, because I'd be sending out 30 cards and I, I was a secretary. I didn't have a lot of money, but I wanted to buy my, I love giving people presents and not a lot of expensive things, but I felt so much pressure. I, I, you know, found that pagan idea that this is a time of rest and that we're going into the dark and that we should be slowing it down. Of course, this is the Northern Hemisphere. So I started thinking like, that seems like a very good idea. <laughs> and I started to at least try to slow down a lot of um, what I did during this time where it's dark, not a lot of light. You want to sleep more and curl up with the book and I really felt much better and not depressed. And I, I know, you know, obviously some people will struggle with depression because of the lack of light. Uh, but I think that we, we are biological creatures and we ignore that to our detriment. And that one of the, the things I was thinking about the coronavirus is it's made people slow down so much that I wonder if some people are literally de-stressing from years of pushing themselves in the United States because we're, we've got that work ethic. You've got to work. You've got to produce. You've got to be doing something of value. And, and just being and, and, and not doing anything is not valued in Western civilization. Yeah, because it doesn't make anybody any money. No. You know, it's, it's, it's but spiritual introspection is its own thing. I mean, it's 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 its own reward, and it's something that people need. And, and one of the things in our, our culture, which we might miss, is the idea that there are things that people need that have nothing to do with making somebody some money. Yeah, and there's even been to me, people are are commercializing spirituality through Instagram too much, and to the point where. 
I'm not really in favor of people revealing all their rituals all the time, live streaming everything because of that. There's there's something you lose by not not having solitary in your life, by not just going in and just with yourself or maybe a, a group of people, but again, having to in some way commercialize it to make you, I'm doing something. And, and then some people obviously can even charge for things like that. And it and I, I see there's movements, at least in some of the, the broad spiritual movement, of, of exposing all that too much. And, and there's also, to me, a kind of loss of intimacy between you and the divine. Not, mm. not everybody has to see it to, to have it be meaningful. Yes, yes. And, and Christ said something very much like that. That, you know, if, 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 if you're praying for show, if you're doing it as something so that other people can see it, you're not doing it. And it's it's funny. I, I have this really powerful memory. Um, when I was a teenager, I felt really awkward about around anything religious because I wasn't brought up religious. And when I realized it was mostly that pretentious religious thing that you're talking about, because once I was I was at the Duke Chapel, and they have a beautiful chapel. At, I, I went to Duke University for two years. And I was there just because I thought it was such a beautiful and peaceful place to go. And I, I was in the back and there's a woman there. I don't think she knew anybody was in there. And she went up to the front and she just broke down crying and praying in a way I'll never forget. I, I felt like it was so beautiful and I, I felt so privileged to see someone just so honest and vulnerable but I, I like I said I just kind of sat in the back and and it was a very powerful experience for me to witness and I think that's what made me feel okay this is to me what spirituality is this is someone really reaching and and I don't know why she was doing what she was doing I don't know what she was praying but I've never forgotten it it was just really powerful hmm. it's what the uh, uh, the Puritans called the vertical relationship, the relationship strictly between you and God that has nothing to do with anybody else. And, and I think that we as Americans, to me, are not that comfortable with some of that. Whereas my experience of being around at least the Tibetan Buddhist lamas, they're, a lot of them are quite comfortable with that. And they, they don't, my own Buddhist teacher never talked about his inner spiritual experiences ever publicly. He, uh, he would make fun of himself, actually, <laughs> just uh, talk about his conflicting emotions and with Buddhist terms. And yet he obviously was a realized person. If you spent any time around him, you, you just knew it. You, you, you didn't, he didn't have to say anything. And I, I met more than one teacher like that. Just being in their presence, you there, that's there's something really tangible about very truly connected holy people. Not perfect people, but just that they're connected and you yeah. you you enjoy being in their presence. Yeah. So but um I know getting off a little bit into the sort of the Buddhist yeah. ideas of things, uh, but I I uh I did a little, just read one article about the war on Christmas because I was kind of thinking about the fact that I didn't know anything about the history of it and how um, 
in December, on December 7th in 2004, the O'Reilly Factor kind of revved it all up with a segment they did on the war on Christmas. Uh, so Bill O'Reilly was one of the founders of that. Both him and Pat Robertson around the same time started in on that. You have to wonder sometimes, like with someone like Pat, how he can do this and then also say he represents Jesus's teachings. I mean, the, the irony of all this is it's, it really doesn't fit the, the teachings at all. Well, the thing about him is he's often wrong, but never in doubt. I mean, he's, he's willing to say it in a way that seems to be all encompassing. And he does so very, he's one of, he, maybe the most in, influential person on our culture right now, because he is a master broadcaster. He has mastered the whole idea of televangelism and created such a large audience for it, unprecedented. It's, it's amazing. And I think it has a lot to do with the way people think today and why there's so many people who believe that liberals are drinking baby's blood, uh, that it, it takes a specific point of view. He will... You know, when, when there was the, uh, the, the flood and the hurricane in New Orleans in 2005, you know, he's the one that came out and said, this is God's work because they were uh, putting up with homosexuality. The idea that God would cause this kind of natural disaster is a way of getting back at people who have gone away from the fold. It is scriptural indeed in the old testament but there is also in christianity such a thing as covenant history and that means that the idea that god would punish us for being bad is part of the old covenant the new covenant which has replaced the old covenant because the old covenant was broken not by god but by us and so God makes through the prophet Jeremiah, and as is realized from a Christian point of view in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new covenant in which there is no such thing. Yeah, that Old Testament God was pretty angry and smiting everybody a lot. Right, and, and those were the old rules. And, if, you know, and in, in Judaism, there's another way of looking at it. But in Christianity, there's a very specific way of looking at it uh, in that all of that debt that we owe God was paid at the cross, all of it, paid off in full. That is a part of early Christian theology and is a fundamental tenet of Christianity. Yeah, I didn't know that about the two covenants, but again, I, I don't know a whole lot about Christianity in general. Well, it's, it's the, you know, the, the New Testament and the Old Testament are named after those covenants, uh, the testament meaning covenant. The, the, the Old Covenant was the covenant of law uh, in which our deal with God is as long as we obey his law to the letter, we will have good fortune, we will be protected, we will be God's people, whatever. That, our part of the deal is that, God's part of the deal is protection. And when, the, when Jerusalem fell, as the prophets predicted, it was because the people just weren't living by the law. They were claiming to, 
they were living by the law in letter, but not in spirit. If you see what I mean, they were doing the proper observances in the uh, temple, but they were allowing the poor to suffer. They were not helping the poor. They were not kind. They were not loving. And, and God, from the point of view of the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah are saying, this is not working. So I'm going to change it. So there was the fall of Jerusalem as a kingdom, the complete destruction of Solomon's temple. Uh, and all of that was the punishment. And then after that, God looks down and he sees the people suffer and they're away from him and all this kind of thing. According to Jeremiah and Isaiah, he says, I will fashion a new covenant. And that it will be, instead of being a covenant of law, it will be a covenant of spirit where sins are forgiven and everybody has the chance to renew their relationship with God. I wanted to touch base a little on this concept of, of God protecting the righteous, because I've been thinking about spiritual protection over the last couple months. And to me, I came sort of to the, a, a sort of the realization for me that spirituality does not guarantee any protection in the short run, that that isn't really the purpose of spirituality. Uh, it's, it's to help you live through difficult times. It's to help you have tools. And this, this because may, perhaps because I, a lot of people in, in my area, they're always doing protective magic and I've got to protect myself. I've got to protect myself. And I found myself doing that too much. And I began to think about, well, is this really healthy? Is this really what you know, it means to be a conscious spiritual being. There's so many examples of, of for instance, Thich Nhat Hanh, who had a terrible stroke six years ago, and he's still alive. I, I didn't realize this whole time he's been partially paralyzed and has not spoken. And yet here is this monk that has done so much good, and he's just taking it with stride. He's showing us how to live with, with this illness. And he's like, turned 95, I think, recently. Well, I'm just to say the same thing uh, that you just said, which I totally agree with. Um, the nature of life is challenged. The, the nature of human life is challenged. There's no promise from God that I know about that delivers us from challenge, from being in changing, challenging circumstances. And that's, you know, that's not a sign of being good or bad. It is simply the water that we swim in when we are living human lives. We will die someday, there is pain, there is, you know, there are challenges, challenges to being young, challenges to being old. There's, there's all kinds of things that we encounter in life <laughs> that are just a part of our existence. And the, the spiritual value, in my opinion, is that you know, we travel through those challenges with God, with as much spiritual awareness as we can, so that, you know, God offers us a way through these challenges or a way to be during these challenges. But the idea that they're there, in my view, that's just human life. Yes, and I, I think that we have a currently a collective challenge that we are still going going through and that we don't even know the repercussions of and we'll perhaps, go through it till we get it right yeah 
you know, there, there, there is, there is an other side of it, but we as people or as a culture, especially the United States more than any place else, uh, is, is very challenged in dealing with it. Now it's, you're seeing other countries, other places who did the right thing, thought they'd licked it, but then now we find out it's back, you know? So, you know, there's something going on that we have not yet found the answer to. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think it's, it's fair to say, because in a way it's a first, not so much because we haven't gone through plagues before, but we haven't necessarily gone through the, through a plague like this or a disease like this with everyone being aware of everybody with the, you know, knowing exactly what's going on in New Zealand, knowing what's going on here. This is in a way, I think of first that we're bombarded with so much information about what's going on that's all mixed up. And you have to sort out how we feel about what's the truth and what's a conspiracy. And so that part alone is overwhelming. So, yeah, and so denial would denial that it exists would be the fear-driven response. Just it doesn't exist. It's not real. It's it's part of the conspiracy of the evil liberals trying to control our lives. The nanny state is trying to tell us how to live, tell us what to do, and whatever. Uh, because I'm afraid to really face the fact that this is happening. It's but a it, it's a lot to face. Yeah, but the proof face. of it's happening yeah. doesn't go away. It, it 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 keeps confronting us with it until we get it right, until we figure out what it is. And if you look at the, the way it started, you know, it had started with issues having to do with diet, how we eat, you know, how we, uh, you know, the killing of animals, the, you know, the, the, all, all the different issues that are in how it started. And then of course, as, as Bill Maher talks about a lot on his show, is that as a culture, we've, you know, moved away from uh, the fitness culture. You know, we've moved away from that. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we, we indulge in eating things that we shouldn't, I certainly do. Uh, and, the, uh, and, and not exercising, not keeping fit because being fit is a part of good health. You know, it's just, it's, it's something that helps you when you get a disease, it helps you come back from it. Absolutely. Well, we're almost through. We have about a minute left. Uh, so we're very happy that you came on the show today. And I, I, uh, I, I really enjoy this. And it's always great to talk to you. Uh, we, we love having you on. And we, I know we'll have you next year as well. And uh, I hope you... You mean I'll be back? <laughs> well, we're assuming. We're making some assumptions that we'll all be back. So I better, you know, because because you guys are going to move into some stratosphere where you're going to have only big name celebrities on the show. Oh, that's never going to happen. I know it's your head. <laughs> you so you are a big name. <laughs> so no, we're, we're here to have a diverse uh, audience, a diverse guest. So we look forward to having you back next year. I'll be back. All right. Thanks so much. And thank you, everyone who listened all year. I hope you have a great holiday season and we look forward to next year where we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. <laughs>